The book of Genesis is the story of beginnings. Within its pages we meet Creator God, are introduced to mankind in all his glory and his shame, and get the first glimpses of the Rescuer, Jesus Christ. You're listening to a sermon series on the first four of Genesis 10 stories by Pastor Stacy Potts. The following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. It said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me a Gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. To Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain shall you eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. You were dust, to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and live forever, and eat and live forever. <coughs> Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Lord, we, uh, we are beginning our journey now into the text to understand what has happened in the first world. Today, Father, we want to be confronted with the ugliness of what sin really is. It is too tempting for every single person in this room to make excuses for our failures towards you, 
make excuses for our sins against you. And just, just pretend like they're not really important or not very significant, particularly when compare them to other people. But Lord, what we're going to start learning today is that sin is an ugly, ugly thing. It is an act of cosmic treason against you. It is the most heinous thing this world has ever seen. Because it seeks to displace you from your rightful position as Lord and put in your place ourselves or whatever So Lord, this morning as we work through the text, will your spirit be active in our hearts and the church? Don't let us sugarcoat these words. Don't, don't, Lord, allow our sinful hearts to pretend that these are not speaking about us. Show us the ugliness of sin this morning. Help us to see it in all its fullness. Pray. Lord, I'm not sufficient for this. None of us in this room are sufficient for this. Only you can open our eyes to the Father, I ask in the name of your Son that you will help us to see everything that Jesus had to die for. We ask all these things in his name. I started last week uh, telling you about how I normally approach the sermon, how I normally attempt to allow the text that I'm in to not only dictate what I say, but also how I go about saying it. So you may remember from last time that I said, you know, forgive me, I'm not going to start that way this morning, I'm going to do it a different way, so we took a different approach, but guess what? I'm not going to do it that way again, okay? We're going to take another week of, of changing things up, particularly, particularly in terms of the introduction, because as I pointed out to you last time, Moses doesn't give us an introduction into the story. It's just, boom, here you are, the story of the fall. And so without that kind of a bridge or an introduction into the into the text, I started thinking, okay, what's the only other logical place to start when you need such a such an introduction? And immediately when I thought about that, the answer came to mind, it's clearly rap music, right? That's exactly what all of you were expecting me to say right there. Um, I'm specifically thinking of the CD that we gave away last year on the resource table, the one called Not Guilty, by Curtis Allen, a.k.a. The Voice. Uh, the subtitle on it, you'll notice the process of pardon. This is the same guy who was over at Sovereign Grace a few months ago when we were trying to get you guys to come out. I think about like six of us showed up or eight of us showed up. I confessed to you at that time my personal affinity for rap music, and you all laughed at me. And I still don't know why, because even though I may be a dork at heart, every dork has a little something somewhere deep inside that they cling to, thinking that might give them a little bit of coolness at some point. I like Curtis Allen mainly because he is able to put <coughs> more biblical and theological content into one of his songs than you will hear all day listening to Caleb. And I'm not a I'm not a fashion Caleb here. I like Caleb. Okay, it's great. I'm just saying that you can cut out probably 75% of the content that you listen to over the course of a day, and you wouldn't have actually lost anything, right? Not not so with Curtis Allen. Every single song on his CD is like a little mini seminary education. And so as I was thinking about, about Genesis 3, he was my influence this week as I was trying to contemplate Adam and Eve's rebellion against God. 
You see, the very first song on his CD is called Process Number One, The Indictment. And he sets it up in kind of an unusual way. He, he's a reporter in Heaven's Court, which is kind of a spoof off of the People's Court. And he's watching a trial unfold between God, who is bringing a case against three defendants, Adam, Eve, and the serpent. Those is primarily aimed at Adam. And so he begins to lay out the case against Adam. He charges him with two things there in the song. Number one, with not pleasing the Lord. And number two, with wanting to be Lord himself. Does that sound at all familiar? Before we talk about last time. And from there, from those two charges, everything else in the story, everything else in Genesis 3 is given as evidence. And so the fact that Adam and Eve ate the fruit, that's not the charge itself. That's merely evidence of the charges. You understand the distinction? That the fact that they forgot or just neglected their role as image bearers is not the charge itself. It's merely the evidence of the charges. It's the story of Genesis 3 presented in a slightly different format for the purpose of driving home mankind's guilt and rebellion against God. And I've been thinking about Island City a lot in preparation for the sermon. In fact, I am. Uh, I've listened, you know how when you listen to a song, particularly maybe a biblical song, where they, they just use words from the scriptures in a little different way, but you hear it so much, it gets in your head, and, and then when you go and try to read your Bible afterwards, all you can hear is that song? That's how it is for me. Every time I read in Genesis 3, in fact, when I'm up here reading to you, I can hear Alan's voice in the back of my head. So, for example, I get to Genesis 3.15, this just incredible passage about how the, the serpent will bruise the heel of the woman's seed and he will eventually bruise or crush the serpent's head. And I read those words and all I can hear is Alan in the back of my mind where he says, you will bruise him plenty, but he will crush like orange soda. Yeah, yeah, yeah wait, I'm messing this up. You will bruise him plenty, but he will crush like orange soda. I warn you, yeah, don't feel like your head is bust. What do you think? Are you try out three and wrap it? No, I'm not going to try I'm not that cool by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, regardless of how you think of those words, as I was contemplating, I thought, you know what? Alan's model is helpful here in Genesis 3, particularly as we begin going into these first six verses, trying to understand what Adam and Eve have done. So I want us to go to court this morning. That's all I want to do. I want us to go to court against Adam and Eve. To look at these verses, these first six verses of Genesis 3, and try to understand exactly what they, they've done. And I hope that I've made it clear over these last two Sundays, I even said it again in my prayer, what the primary indictment against them is. They are charged with cosmic treason. And you think about treason on our level here, the human level against our nation. What happens if you're found guilty of treason? And get shot. Yeah. It's not a good outcome. They're found guilty, or excuse me, they're being charged here with cosmic treason. So what we want to do is we want to go through this text to see, is that charge right? Are they really attempting to overthrow the rule and reign of God in their lives so that they can set themselves up as their own Lord? These are heavy, serious charges. And I will tell you up front that many of us are not accustomed thinking through the text of Genesis 3, 1 through 6 in this kind of way. We read it, maybe because of our Sunday school influences, we're like, oh look, they ate the fruit. That's not the point. 
You're missing the point if that's all you see when you read those first six verses. And so we need to do our best to think critically and logically about this so that we can see the fullness of their sin against God. And so I am bringing this indictment of treason against them this morning in three counts. Count number one, that Adam and Eve did willfully and knowingly rebel against the spiritual capacity with which they had been made by God. For all of you who have been here with us through Genesis 2, you recognize two key words there, right? Spiritual capacity. Because when we were in Genesis 2, we went through the text, and we said, what is, what is Moses doing here? What's he explaining to us about man? And we had this paragraph that I kept showing you over and over and over again, that God made man and woman, Adam and Eve, with the spiritual capacity, moral responsibility, and communal assistance necessary to serve him and enjoy abundant life in his creation. That's what we looked at over and over again for those weeks. You turn to Genesis 3, chapter 3, verse 1, the very first thing you see is that they willfully and knowingly rebel against that same spiritual capacity. As we work through the first two chapters of Genesis, we learn two specific things about the spiritual capacity of man. This is just review so that we're all on the same page. First, we learn that God made man, how? In his image. In his likeness. That didn't mean that they looked like him physically as if God has ten fingers and ten toes like us. But it does mean that they resemble him as a person. In other words, because God can think and do, man can think and do. Because God can speak and love and have relationships, man can speak and love and have relationships. Man was set apart by God from the rest of creation because of this one thing that he was the image bearer, the one intended to represent man on this earth. Second, we looked at the significance of the garden. Remember that? The significance of the garden to man's spiritual capacity. Again, you read, because of our Sunday school backgrounds, I'm guessing, we read about the Garden of Eden, we think, oh, what a beautiful, pretty place. Or I'm sure it was. I don't think that's the point. I think the point of the garden is that this is the place where God was going to dwell with man on earth. You need to be thinking like tabernacle in the wilderness, temple in Jerusalem, that this is the place where man will see God, walk with God, talk with God, know God. That's man's perspective. From God's perspective, this garden is the place where he will show his abundant love and provision and care for them. Every tree is there. Enjoy them all, he says, except one. When you read through, when we study through those two concepts, I hope that one word stood out in your mind above all others. And that was the word relationship. That God made man to have a relationship with him. Well, unfortunately, as we all know, Adam and Eve destroyed that. And I give you two pieces of evidence to support this claim. That they rebelled, willfully, knowingly rebelled against this. First, they devalued and disregarded their role as image bearers. And in so doing, they rebelled against God's worship. They devalued it. They disregarded it. And you see this, I think, in, in verses 4 through 6. Moses says that the serpent said to the woman, you'll not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food, 
that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And Moses makes two, two things very clear here. Did you catch them? Number one, he makes it clear that part of the serpents offered Adam and Eve is the ability to be like him. Those words should jump out at you because you know something in the story. You, the reader, are aware of how they were made. They were already made to be like him. They're image bearers. That's why, what their function is here on this earth. The second thing he makes clear is that Adam and Eve, upon consideration of this offer, desired this God-like wisdom, and therefore they ate of the fruit. Now, talked about this numerous times. I'm going to keep talking about it until we get out of chapter 3. Repetition is the key to learning, right? You know that. Parents, you know that. How many times have you said to your children, don't fuck with them? You understand this. Genesis chapter 3, the story of the fall, is not about this eating of the fruit. That's a piece of it, yes. Ultimately, it's not the main piece. When you look at this offer here, something stands out that makes no sense to me whatsoever. Why does Satan offer them God likeness? It's an outright, utter lie. He can't offer that. No one can but God himself. So the temptation I see here makes no sense. But what makes even less sense to me is Adam and Eve's response. Because they're already like that. That's the whole point of what Genesis 1 and 2 is explaining about man. They're already made in his image. What more could they want? What more did they want? Well, whatever it is, they wanted it. Eve sees here that the tree is desired, not just because it tastes good. Yes, that's going to come into it. It's desired to make one wise. It could give them something more, more different, other than what they already have. And they want this. So she takes and eats and gives some to her husband who's with her and he eats. This choice on their part shows me how much they value their status as image bearers. How much do they value it? Nothing to them whatsoever. It wasn't enough. Now for Eve, we can cut her a little bit of slack. Because the text specifically says that she was deceived. And as you look through the rest of the scriptures, that's the, that's the mantra all the way through. She's deceived. She's tricked. She's deceived. But Adam, he's got no, no excuse whatsoever. He willfully, knowingly chooses to reject God and seek to be like him in a way that God himself did not allow. It wasn't enough. His plan wasn't enough. God's goodness to them wasn't enough. They wanted more, and they were willing to do whatever it took, whatever it took to achieve their ultimate end. They would be Lord. I would say to you folks, this is a clear clear example and evidence of their treason against God. Second, they devalued and disregarded the provision that God had made for them there in the garden, and in so doing, rebelled against God's lordship. You see, God had made Moses write words that were intended, I think, to be crystal clear. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Wait a minute. You recognizing any similarity in wording to something we read in chapter 3? 
Verse 6, Eve notices two things about this tree of knowledge of good and evil. Number one, that it's good for food. Number two, that it's a delight to the eyes. You see this? It's almost exactly the same wording. God had made a sacred garden temple that was filled with every tree that was pleasant to the sight and good for food. But at this moment in Genesis 3, the sum of those trees in total don't compare to the desire they have for this one. The other ones are nothing to them. Now, God's provision can't be questioned. Make sure you understand this. If you look back at chapter 2, verse 16, he clearly says, look, you can eat of all of them. I've given them all to you except this one. Every tree then provided. He gave them a super abundant, yes, single, solitary, no. This was the only one that could be enjoyed. And so I would argue that their choice to neglect and ignore all the other trees so that they could have this one shows a willful, knowing rejection of God's gracious provision to them here in this garden. They devalued it disregarded it the moment they decided to take their provision into their own hands. Now, that's an act of treason. The wording that Moses has chosen here in chapter 3 is not an accident, folks. It's not an accident. He is wanting you to see that their choices, that, that their motivations surrounding all this stuff, all of it is working together toward a willful, knowing rebellion against the spiritual capacity with which they have been made by God. This is no accident. This is treason. Count number two. That Adam and Eve did willfully and knowingly rebel against every moral responsibility with which they have been entrusted by God. Every single one of them. Not just fruit. As you, as you look through these first two chapters, you begin to understand that they had other responsibilities that are all violated simultaneously here in these first six verses. First, they disobeyed God's command to have dominion over every living thing that moves on the earth. First piece of evidence. If you look back in chapter 1, right after God had made them, he says to them, look, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is, this is one of their responsibilities. And you'll notice that part of this, the first part, has to do with having babies and multiplying and filling the earth. Yet, you know, I don't, I don't really hold them accountable for that, nor do the scriptures at any point, because that's, that's not really in their control. The psalmist says that the fruit of the womb is, is God's reward. In other words, he's in, he has to do that. Only God can open and close the womb, not, not man. And so while I assume that Adam and Eve were doing their part, God had not yet allowed this to happen. So they're not guilty of this. But in regards to the second half of this command, there's clearly failure here. As part of their status as image bearers, one of the responsibilities they had been given was to have dominion over all these creatures. The word dominion means to rule over, to, to be in charge of. They were representing God here on this earth, and as a result, part of their status as image bearers was to have dominion over this earth. Well, as you look at the opening verses of chapter 3, you realize very quickly that they are choosing to disobey this command. Who's talking to them in chapter 3? Not, no, no, don't say Satan. You said that or thought that, you're wrong. More immediately, who are they looking at or what are they looking at? 
They're looking at a serpent, a beast of the field. Notice Moses points that out to you. And I told you before, he's trying to help you understand this is not a figment of Eve's imagination. This isn't like an apparition or some kind of visual trick of Satan. No, it's, a, it's an animal. It's one of the very creatures that they are supposed to have dominion over. And yet, they engage it in conversation. They allow it to influence them. And by the end, it will be clear that the serpent had dominion over Adam and Eve. You see, just the manner in which they subjugate themselves to this beast by answering its questions and taking its counsel is a sin against the very first responsibility they've been given to rule and have dominion over these very creatures out of love for them and obedience for God. Second, they disobeyed God's command to work and keep the garden. This was one of their responsibilities. In, in chapter 2, verse 15, Moses wrote that the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. When we study those two words, work and keep, I try to help you understand these are gardening terms. It, these are the same words that are used of the priests in the Levitical law when they are ministering to the Lord in the temple. They work, they minister before him, they keep, they guard all these things that God has given them. Adam here is being given a command to minister before God and protect what he's made. Well, um, it's obvious, isn't it, that he failed on both of those counts? You know, just let's just take the keeping one for a moment. If he had just guarded the garden, if he had just protected it, then the serpent would have never even had an opportunity to question the Lord of the universe. As soon as the, as the serpent began to deny God's warning of death, Adam would have picked him up and thrown him out of the garden because this is his responsibility. But of course, as we see, he doesn't do that. He not only allows an enemy into this sacred place, but he follows him and was himself then, as a result, thrown out of the garden. Third, and most recognizable of all, they disobeyed God's command to not eat of this one tree. Okay, this is where everybody goes first. God's words were clear. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. No ambiguity. No uncertainty. These words are simple, clear, and urgent. Remember that we talked about that? Simple, clear, and urgent. Everything that needs to be said here is said clearly and without question. And yet this is the very point that Satan attacks the strongest. Did God, did God say anything to you? Did you speak in the garden? Is that what I heard? And Eve's response is nothing short of confusing. He responds by saying that God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. If you've been around at all, ever studied Genesis 3, you know that's not exactly what God said. So oftentimes people will see that and start asking questions. Why? Why doesn't she quote God correctly? What's up with that? That must be a big problem, okay? Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. I don't really know. Because there's different options of what, what might be causing this. Maybe, maybe God gave that original command to Adam alone and Adam just didn't communicate it well. I don't know. Or, or maybe Eve is simply attempting to intensify the command in order to protect herself. You, you do that, right, with your kids? 
you're concerned, parents, that your children don't go out the street and get hit by a car. And so you could say to them, look, don't go in the street if a car is coming. But is, do you say that to your children? No, it's don't go in the street. So you're intensifying the command, if I keep them out the street at all, whether there's a car there or not, it doesn't matter, they'll never get hit. You've intensified the command. This is, what, this is what the Pharisees did. Jesus regularly chided them for because they would intensify commands and then hold people accountable based on what they had done. Maybe, maybe that's what Eve is doing here. If I don't touch the tree, then I'll never eat of its fruit. So that's, that's what I'll do. I don't know. Or, or maybe God did say something like this. And Moses just doesn't tell us or, or doesn't know himself. We don't know. I would say to you, that it really doesn't matter. That people see this and they get drawn away into this question, and I'm saying, I don't think it matters. Because ultimately, the piece that the serpent latches onto is not her misquoting of God. It's the warning of death that God had given. That's what he goes to. He denies that warning outright. You will not surely die. And then he gives his reason about why God would give that kind of warning to them. It's to, it's to keep you from being like him, and of course they accept that. And therefore, in full knowledge of what God had said to them, they choose to disobey God's command to not eat one of this one tree. And again, I would argue that Moses is not writing these things accidentally. That he's using these words on purpose to draw your attention to the fact that they are willfully and knowingly rebelling against the moral responsibilities with which they have been entrusted by God, every single one will be violated. This is no simple one kind of thing mistake. It's treason. Count number three. That Adam and Eve did willfully and knowingly rebel against the communal assistance with which they had been provided by God. As we saw in chapter two, God made man and woman to need each other. Adam had been made as the leader, the one to whom God had given the tasks at hand. However, he couldn't do it alone. In fact, God, in a very striking moment, says, this is not good. The man is alone. It's not good, and so he makes a helper for him. Adam and Eve were literally made for one another. We use that phrase figuratively at times about couples, but for Adam and Eve, it's true. She's the one who would complete him, who would complement him who would do the things that he could not do, who would fill in the gaps and make him whole. They are literally made for each other. Yet when you get to chapter 3, you see both of them completely and miserably fail at their functions within this relationship. First, you see that Adam makes a willful choice not to leave. Now listen, there is a phrase here in verse 6 which you need to understand. If you don't have a pen, you need to borrow a pen. If no one has a pen, you need to bite your finger and get some blood so you can underline it, okay? Is that important? Because when you read through Genesis 3, 1 through 6, it's easy to miss this. But Moses says here that after Eve saw how good the fruit of this tree was, that she took of its fruit and ate, and she gave also, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. If you've been wondering along the way, where's Adam? What's he doing? He left in the bathroom? Where was he at? Moses is answering this question for you right now. He's right there next to her this entire time. 
They could. That means that he heard what the serpent said and said nothing. That means that he chose not to answer the serpent's questions himself. He became passive and sat back and let his wife do this for him. That when she starts to grab the fruit and eat, he's watching her and letting her do it. And that ultimately, he willfully chooses on his own to eat the fruit as well. See, in all of these ways and in others already mentioned, Adam is making a willful choice not to leave. He's letting Eve go down this path to her destruction. He's the worst example of things we've talked about numerous times here at Cornerstone with men of being a lazy, selfish coward. He's the worst one of them all. Second, you see that Eve chooses not to help. Her role is to help Adam do and be all that God has made him to do and be. They're, they're very much in this together. And so I asked the question, why did she like, help remind Adam, hey, this isn't good. We need to get this thing out of here. Why did she help Adam remember God's abundant provision for them? Why? What does she do? She's just going blindly along. In verse 13, she's going to claim that she was deceived. And of course, nobody denies this through Scripture, so I won't deny it either. But you notice, as we get down further in chapter 3, the fact that she's deceived doesn't, doesn't absolve her from guilt. She bears blame as well here, and God punishes her for this. You look at these things. We're three for three now. Moses has chosen to explain this story in a very specific way on purpose. He's wanting you to see that their choices, their actions, their inactions are all a willful, knowing rebellion against the communal assistance with which they've been provided by God. They both fail completely and miserably. This isn't, this isn't an oops, my bad kind of thing. This is cosmic treason. And so, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, as you look at all of this evidence, as you look at Genesis 3, 1 through 6, I hope you can see now why I have harped on this for so long. That this sin, this fall, is not simply about eating some fruit that they're not supposed to eat. That's a piece of it, but it's not at the heart. It is a willful and knowing rebellion against everything. Literally everything that we have seen up to this point. And I would argue that the only logical, biblical conclusion that you can draw from these facts is that they had every desire to overthrow God's rule and reign, his lordship in their lives, so that they could be their own lords. That's my indictment against them. I think that's Moses' indictment against them now. We've got to stop. Because time will permit us to, to do the whole thing. There's more. There's, there's a lot more here. And normally when I have to do this, I've told you before how I hate doing two-part sermons, but we just don't have any options. Normally when I do this, I try to give you like an application at the end. I want to show you Jesus. I want to I want to talk about how you know, the gospel affects this. I'm in the mood for doing things differently. I'm not going to do that today. I'm making that choice on purpose. See, what I want you to walk out of 
this room today with is not, uh, I'll just say it very bluntly. I don't want you to walk out of here with I want you to walk out of here today looking at the ugliness of sin in its entirety. I want you to go home this week. I want you to think about these things. I want you to think about how completely they rebelled, how everything they did, everything they didn't do, all of it was aiming in the same exact direction. Overthrow God's rule and reign in their lives so that they could be Lord. Very unusual for us. Because normally we want to stop and say, okay, where's Jesus? If Jesus is here, we're going to see him next time. But not right now. The only thing I want to send you home with, really, is one question. Are you guilty of these same sins? Notice I didn't ask, are you guilty of sin? I knew this was sin. Let's do this. Are you guilty of these same sins? Have you willfully, knowingly rebelled against the spiritual capacity that gives you this? Have you willfully, knowingly rebelled against every single moral responsibility that God has set out for you? Have you willfully and knowingly rebelled against the communal assistance that gives you Jesus to provide you? Don't, don't sugarcoat it. Don't give yourself excuses. Oh, this is, no, no. Are you guilty? That's the question. When we come back together next time, we'll try to understand what the implications of our guilt in these same ways has on our understanding not only of Genesis 3, but of the gospel and the scriptures and God's plan. Lord, there is nothing of beauty in what we've seen today. Every single word I've spoken is negative. It's about sin. It's about willful, knowing rebellion. It's about cosmic treason. There is no hope in these words. These words serve one purpose and one purpose only, and that is to nail us. And Lord, we don't like thinking about our sin. We don't like thinking about all that we've done to rebel against you. And I would say that in every other Sunday for the past four and a half years, that would be right, that we would not think about it, that we would ultimately come back to the glorious grace and mercy and forgiveness of Jesus Christ shown for us on the, on the cross. But not today, Lord. We don't want to think about it, but when we forget our sin, we embrace it all over again. And so this morning, Lord, this week, I'm asking you to keep these thoughts at the front and center of our hearts and minds. May we see it in its ugliness. May we realize in all the seriousness, all the same ways that we have done these things. We can't blame Adam. We can't blame Eve. We can't blame the serpent. We can't blame each other. Lord, we are guilty of all these things. Help us to see the truth of that comment this week. And then, Lord, bring us back together next time. Lord, willing. we want to understand 
what that means. Help us understand the significance of our guilt for you. Understand what you had to do to get it back, to, to remove it, to wipe it away. So, Lord, these two sermons, we give them both to you with what has been said and what is to come. We ask you to help us appreciate the great grace that you have shown us. We love you, Lord. Your word.